This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome to another episode. Our guest is Colin McConnerty. He's a graduate student working on his doctoral dissertation at Boston College under Heather Cox Richardson. He also earned his master's degree from BC as well as his BA, so that makes him a triple eagle. I think they still call you triple eagles. Is that right, Colin? It is. Uh, well, welcome to Preble Hall. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I should note that we were introduced virtually because everybody was going to be going to Society for Military History Conference at the end of this month. And we, and as well as another podcast, had an arrangement, an MOA with SMH. Uh, we all were going to work together in getting some of these podcasts. We were going to do them on-site at the conference. But I appreciate your flexibility in doing this outside of that, given the COVID and its effects on the conference. Yeah, I appreciate you, too, um, for setting this up. It's been an awesome way to kind of keep some aspect of the SMH conference um, and maintain that. So I appreciate you setting it up, it up too. Your dissertation title is called A Final Solution of the Negro Question, Southern Democrats, the New Navy, and the End of Reconstruction in America. How did you get involved with this topic? Yeah, I actually entered uh, graduate school uh, specifically as a wanting to focus on race and politics in the United States and specifically focusing on those issues um, during the Reconstruction era or kind of the second half of the 19th century, the three and a half decades um, after the end of the Civil War. And as I began my research, I wanted to find out uh, specifically the question and explore the question of how did we go from a federal government that was actively enforcing Reconstruction and protecting the rights of citizens, specifically Black Americans in the South, to a system only 35 years later, or really 30 years later, where the federal government was not enforcing that and where there was a reestablishment of white supremacy through uh, Jim Crow, disenfranchisement, and other means. And as I researched that, I started to lock in on what Southern congressmen were doing in the federal government and noticing that national security was a huge part of what they were doing and hence started getting really involved with uh, naval history. Let's go to terminology for a second. And the reason I bring this up is because during my doctoral dissertation in England, when I was talking about the Navy during the 1830s and I was quoting Andrew Jackson and others, and there'd be a quote of the word Negro, or I would use the term black in the dissertation, it had a different connotation in England than it did here, for example. Could you explain Negro, black, African-American, at what points do these terms change over the course of U.S. history? It's a good it's a good question. And the terms that I'm necessarily using are more uh, demonstrative, at least especially in the document I sent you and kind of the overviews that I've been writing has been more taking terminology from the present and applying it. Um, obviously, at that time, um, many black Americans identified themselves as African-American or as uh, black citizens or using the noun blacks and a lot of uh, and they also use the word Negro. Um, as did, which was the preferred terminology um, amongst white Americans. Now, obviously, there's there's been a, a shift away as we've gone forth, in which now we're recognizing that all people that, that race would categorize as Black don't necessarily identify as African American. For instance, there are uh, communities of Caribbean Americans in the United States that uh, a lot of people might think of as that would identify as Black American, but not necessarily as African American. And so kind of merging the, the terminology from today 
and applying it back into uh, into the terminology that existed in kind of the late 19th century. You write that these congressmen, and you're talking about the Southern Democrats in, in the House of Representatives, these congressmen sought to secure a new system of racial hierarchy in the South, which they knew required undercutting the federal government's ability to intervene. Who were these Southern Democrats that you're talking about in your work? Yeah, a lot of the so um, a lot of the Southern Democrats that that are involved here, a lot of them, as as you and listeners would would probably imagine, um, were a lot of people that were were high up leaders in the in the Confederacy and in the Confederate government, in the Confederate armies. Specifically, a lot of them, you know, that were were at the kind of the the peak or the top in the post in the immediate post war period such as Alexander Stevens, um, who was the vice president of the Confederacy and uh, went on to be a representative from Georgia mm-hmm. um, afterwards, as he had before. Um, when those leaders died off by, you know, kind of the mid-1870s, a new generation that had really risen to the role of uh, some generals, uh, but a lot of colonels and kind of like those type of officers started becoming those kind of leading congressmen um, from the southern states. And my dissertation focuses most mostly on on one uh, one of them more than others at least, um, which is a representative from uh, Montgomery County, Alabama, uh, named Hillary uh, Abner Herbert, who was in fact a uh, an ardent secessionist um, in his community before and on the eve of secession, and then uh, joined up with the Confederate military and became a a, a colonel um, in the Confederate Army. Um, before getting a, a bullet through his arm at the Battle of the Wilderness and, and moving back for Reconstruction. Most of these Southern Democrats in the House or the Senate, from uh, had, had they served just in the Army, or is there any indication that some had been in the Confederate Navy, uh, small as it was at that time? Good question. I have not. Off the top of my head, I can't remember any of the congressmen that, uh, that come up here um, having had any role in the Confederate Navy, um, which actually is surprising because most of the Southern congressmen who go on to play these major roles in the U.S. Navy um, in kind of this later 1880s, 1890s period, they actually had more experience uh, in the Army than they did in the Navy to the fact that to the point that when Hillary Herbert became chairman of the House Naval Committee, um, a newspaper in Maine uh, celebrated or kind of mocked him, um, saying that he had he didn't know the difference between a sloop of war and a bathtub. That's an interesting point because the senators from Alabama, Mississippi tend to have much influence over naval affairs as Maine representatives and senators do today because in Maine, of course, you have uh, bath ironworks, which we'll get to a little later on in this discussion. But today you also have a very large shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi. What was the interest for Hillary Herbert for the Navy. What? How did he make this transition from Army issues to Navy? Was it simply a parochial issue for his constituents? So it's a really interesting question and a, a super important one of, of finding out and, and speculating on or seeing if there's any hard evidence in regards to what was the motivation for them focusing on the Navy specifically. Now, I, I initially, in the early stages of the project, I'm suspected that it had to do with economic reasons and economic motivation based on the fact that I knew that, for instance, Selma had uh, been an important uh, ship manufacturer and manufacturing area for uh, Selma, Alabama had been for the Confederate uh, Navy. And I knew that Alabama and these other areas had played important roles for the Confederate Navy in regards to shipbuilding and other aspects. And at the same time, I knew that Birmingham was obviously blowing up around the same time because of iron ore and was wondering if there were economic benefits 
for these Southern congressmen. And what I found is that there, there was none. Interestingly, you mentioned, you mentioned Bath Ironworks. Almost all of the ships, especially in the early aspect of building the new Navy, almost all of them were built in the Northeast. It, it isn't until we get closer to 1890 that you start seeing smaller ships built on the West Coast in California or eventually kind of litter, littered in the kind of the, the Gulf Coast, the Southeastern states. And so that, ra- that raises the question then of, of why the Navy instead of the Army, especially since, as, your last, as we got into with your last question, that uh, many of these congressmen had experience in the Army and not the Navy. And the answer to that is that they actually were trying to do the same thing with the Army that they were with the Navy in the 1880s and 1890s. One of Hillary Herbert's, his peers in the House, a guy that would go on to be very famous during the Spanish-American War, Joe Wheeler, he was uh, advocating extraordinary expansion of the U.S. Army at the same time. But it was really the naval argument that caught on for an assortment of reasons. One of those reasons is that uh, Southerners were still afraid of the U.S. Army because the U.S. Army had been used by the Grant administration specifically to enforce Reconstruction kind of in the early 1870s. And as long as those enforcement powers still existed for the executive branch, they, were, they feared the expansion of the U.S. Army to some degree. But the larger, the larger and I think better answer is that the U.S. Navy was an extremely, and, and expanding the U.S. Navy was an extremely popular and pregnant issue by the time you get to the 1880s. Why was that? because of a massive expansion and a really naval revolution occurring around the world um, at that time, where you had a Navy shifting from kind of the ironclads of the 1860s into, by the 1880s, ships that are made of steel, that are faster, stronger, better armored, and more powerful than anything the world had ever seen. And almost every time they're making ships, they're coming out stronger and better. And this was really happening everywhere except for the United States. And so by that point, the U.S. Navy and naval expansion were extremely uh, popular issues for these Southern congressmen to kind of hop onto. In reading your work on, there's uh, this thread in history going back really to the Articles of Confederation and this, this philosophy of how you deal with a Navy. It's kind of interesting that you said that the Southern Democrats had one main objective to ensure maintenance of white supremacy in the South. But this also seemed to carry over in their their goals for the Navy, not necessarily only for race, but what they wanted to use the Navy for. And I was wondering if you could comment on some work that uh, Commander John Rohr had, had done, that's probably 20 or 30 years ago, where he looks at the, uh, the Articles of Confederation period, the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers, and he starts to distinguish between the North and the South who was really in favor of a Navy versus state navies. And he and others, such as such as uh, Craig Simons, who had previously taught the United States Naval Academy Department of History, classify these as, as navalists and anti-navalists. And, and during this period, the Southerners, because of their preference for states' rights issues, prefer a navy. They don't, they don't want a national navy. They want some sort of collaboration. You'd have the Virginia State Navy. You'd have the South Carolinian State Navy, etc. When do the Southern Democrats shift from this idea of a distributed state navy system to agreeing that we need a centralized navy. Now, saying that, Rohr did mention that certainly during this period, they said during war, you would have some sort of national navy, but other than that, you would have these state navies. When, when does, how does this 
play a role in reconstruction? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. A little bit of a little bit of that is outside of necessarily my field of expertise um, in regards to kind of the early uh, 19th century and kind of the end of the 18th century. But uh, what, I, what I can say is that uh, Matthew Karp, who is built off of kind of continued on from, you know, you were writing your book focus on the Jackson period and uh, Matthew Karp kind of goes from the Jackson Jacksonian period kind of up to the Civil War. It's interesting that around that period and kind of the, the 1830s and then into the 1840s, and especially in the 1850s, that Southern Democrats actually had become amongst the the biggest proponents of the U.S. Navy and expanding and modernizing the U.S. Navy of uh, anyone in the federal government. Why so I was that? You, and I, I'm not clear why the Southern Democrats were so much in favor of that. Yeah, um, especially my answer will come kind of uh, from from Matthew Carp stuff, and and I want to make sure to give him a, a shout out mm-hmm. rather than uh, claim this as my own. But uh, and I believe that he I believe that he's right which is that Southern congressmen at that time were uh, really looking at protecting the institution of enslavement in the South, and that that was a uh, really critical goal of theirs, if not their number one goal. And, how, and again, how, do, how does the Navy play a role in suppression of, of, slave, of slaves or African-Americans in general? This was actually interesting. They, there was a concept amongst Southern Democrats that in order to protect the system of enslavement, they needed to continue to expand it. And that's why kind of once we get into 1860, they say that, you know, not allowing slavery to expand is the same thing as destroying it. But that's a that's kind of a little bit of a detour. So I won't I won't go down there. But what they were looking at is that the Navy would, one, protect the uh, Western Hemisphere from uh, the influence of European powers that were already established as anti-slavery, such as specifically Great Britain. Second, uh, the expansion of the U.S. Navy in kind of this 1830s, this kind of late antebellum period, would enable the United States to maybe expand their empire into the Caribbean or into South America. At this time, a lot of Southern Democrats were starting to poke around with that idea, and especially they were interested in Cuba, but certainly not limited to that. The filibusters um, went into South America to try to, with kind of the goal of expanding that institution of enslavement. And so those two goals of expanding enslavement even beyond the limits of the the boundaries of the North American continent um, into the Caribbean or South America and their uh, support for the U.S. Navy those two things were really uh, tied and and one. Let's go back to the the term filibusters because today uh, in the modern more common vernacular you'll hear the term with regard to the Senate filibuster where you need a supermajority to ensure the continuance of piece of legislation. In in terms of the 19th century, what who were the uh, the filibusters or the filibusteros? Yeah, good question. Um, because we actually don't see the first major filibuster in the U.S. Senate the way that we think of it today until until 1890. But in the in the earlier period, filibusters were largely almost they claimed to be rogue uh, rogue authorities or rogue actors, individual actors that would go into separate areas, new areas and essentially try to lead a revolution in that area, that then they would align back um, with the United States government, their goal being to go and essentially indirectly and off the, off the kind of the record, 
expand the U.S. empire. Were these U.S. citizens? Uh, in many cases, the most famous of them were, and the most famous of them also had support um, of a lot of leading, a lot of you know people in the United States government, and especially Southerners that were interested in expanding slavery. Can you give some examples of some of the, the better known filibusters? Good question. Uh, there was a, I believe his name was Walker, who... Uh, who oh, William Walker. I believe that uh, Walker was the one who went to Nicaragua. Right. Yeah. And Walker actually led a successful, or, you know, took part in and played a major part in a successful revolution in Nicaragua and uh, came the closest to trying and appealing to the United States government in order to recognize the the new the new country the new state that he had formed there politically that that went nowhere uh, in the United States the other thing that I wanted to turn back to was the issue of slavery in the western hemisphere obviously it ended in 1840 uh, sorry 1865 in the United States it, does it continue anywhere else in the Western Hemisphere, and, and is that why the Southern Democrats are so interested in the Navy and protecting uh, U.S. interests? When you ask your question, do you mean uh, why they're interested in protecting the interests even after 1865? Yes. Okay. So uh, after 1865, other countries, the, the most famous of them being Brazil, continued to have formal and legalized enslavement. Southern Democrats actually were not looking to that influence necessarily, at least not to my knowledge, I'm not influenced by that uh, development and the fact that enslavement still existed in the Western Hemisphere. There actually was a period from, so 1865, that the, the Southern Democrats don't officially return and, and have power in Congress until kind of the big takeover is 1875, when after the 1874 midterm elections, the Democrats, Southern Democrats have really taken over enough of the South that they can send Democratic representatives to the to the House in D.C., and that allows the Democrats overall to have a majority in the House for the first time since secession. And now this, this is the second term, middle of the second term for Ulysses Grant. Why is there such a shift in 1874? Yeah, really important question. It was it was kind of a a back and forth, never ending struggle. Right after the thir- the passage of the thirteenth from the passage of the Thirteenth Amendment and the end of the Civil War, really, former Confederates were very determined to restore the the society and the way that it had existed in the South um, before the Thirteenth Amendment and before the war. The first thing that they did was try to pass black, what were known as the Black Codes um, in order to essentially reestablish enslavement in an informal way through vagrancy laws and things like that. And the Johnson administration uh, allowed for that to happen. But Congress, when it came into session, the Republicans in Congress uh, kind of undid and countered the Black Codes by not recognizing those state governments and then by passing the 14th Amendment which of course uh, grants a new definition of citizenship that opens citizenship up to two black Americans and others um, with universal male suffrage and does a whole bunch of other stuff that, that we could get into. And after the 14th Amendment, black Americans now have the right to vote. And uh, so that's, that's in around, that's kind of in 1867. Southern Democrats then respond by creating organizations like the Ku Klux Klan, kind of terror organizations in the South. And they do their most in, in the presidential election of 1868, which is Grant's first election. The Klan and other Southern Democrat kind of paramilitary organizations really try to discourage and reduce Black suffrage through fear and intimidation tactics. But that doesn't work. And the, the federal government, Congress in particular, 
passes not only the 15th Amendment, but then in the beginning of the 1870s passes what are known as the Enforcement Acts, which give the federal government power to enforce Reconstruction, especially through the um, Justice Department was just created. And so especially the Justice Department was given powers to litigate um, Klan members and, uh, and there were other powers that were allowed also. But they did that for about uh, two years, 1872 and kind of 1873, but the uh, financial collapse that happened in 1873 put the Grant administration in a kind of a tough place um, politically, and they responded to that by stopping uh, federal enforcement. And when they stopped federal enforcement, Southern Democrats continued to use fear and intimidation tactics and violence to discourage black suffrage, and uh, were able to reclaim the Southern governments in, in the mid-1870s. Who was John Carlyle? Yeah, John Carlyle was, was a representative that was elected to Congress from Kentucky um, during this time. His first, uh, he arrives in Washington, D.C. in 1877. He goes through a very swift and very quick rise in the House of Representatives. Um, he becomes very famous in his first term, um, not just for being a champion and of uh, the silver issue or the, the question about silver coinage, but also in regards to trying to undercut federal powers of enforcement uh, by attaching riders to appropriations bills um, for the U.S. Army. Um, and after he does that in the kind of late 1870s, he continues to build his record in the early 1880s. And in the 49th Congress in 1885, he kind of leads a little uh, a coup and a surprise victory for Speaker of the House. And so he is Speaker of the House for the 49th Congress and the 50th Congress is from 1885 to 1889. What's his role with regard to Hillary Herbert? So because of his role as Speaker of the House, he had an immense power. Hillary Herbert was aware of that, and he had actually entered Congress the same year that, that John Carlyle did, and the two of them sat diagonally from each other in the, on the floor of the House. When Carlisle announced that he was going to be running for speaker in 1885, Hillary Herbert became one of uh, his closest allies in regards to rallying uh, the votes in the House of Representatives behind Carlisle so that he would win the speakership instead of his, the guy he was running against, uh, Samuel Randall. And when that happened, um, obviously when Carlisle won and became speaker, that elevated um, Hillary Herbert to a new uh, position of power. And so Carlisle upgraded Herbert and kind of rewarded him with a really desired seat on the House Ways and Means Committee, which still, con still continues to be a very important committee on the House side. Exactly, exactly right. One of the most coveted committee appointments that you can get. And he actually, when he went there, he joined some of the, some of the biggest names in, in the business, including Thomas uh, B. Reed, or uh, who would be known as Czar Reed in the 1890s as uh, speaker for the Republicans. From the state of Maine. Exactly. And so, but after the, after the, at the same time, he had done that in the, I'm sorry, Carlisle had, had become speaker in the 48th Congress. After one Congress in that House Ways and Means Committee, going into the 49th, Herbert requests uh, that he is de essentially demoted from the Ways and Means Committee um, to become chair of the House uh, Naval Affairs Committee, which in the context of that time appears to be requesting a demotion. But obviously, Herbert saw what was going to come and saw how pregnant the issue of naval expansion was, put himself in this kind of head role as, a, as the head of it in Congress. Now, that's important at that time because the Department of the Navy was still 
or at least the Secretary of the Navy, was still part of the cabinet. It wasn't until after World War II that the Navy uh, came under the, a new Department of Defense. So you had the Secretary of War, you had the Secretary of the Navy, both of whom were serving uh, equally uh, in the cabinet. Exactly right. And, uh, and because of that, um, obviously there had been a, since there had not been a Democratic president between 1860 and uh, 1885, there was uh, obviously a Republican Secretary of the Navy for, throughout that entire period. Well, 1885, um, the same time that Herbert is positioning himself as chair of the House Naval Committee, Grover Cleveland has been elected and goes into the presidency. And so you have the first Democratic Secretary of the Navy in that cabinet and at the head of the Navy Department. I mean, that really opens the door for Democrats to run with naval expansion. Let's go back uh, just a little bit. And this may have been out of your your, your study period. Uh, there was a secretary of war under James Buchanan, John Floyd. He was a southerner. And there had been accusations that in the run up to the to the Civil War, he had supported secession after Harper's Ferry had started funneling a lot of the federal arsenal, you know, whether the weapons, the ammunition, down to southern bases in preparation for a civil war. He later becomes a, a general and is the one who retreats from Fort Donelson as Grant advances on this. Is there any residual distrust for the southern Democrats, specifically with regard to the Navy, uh, during Reconstruction or post-Reconstruction, because of what they had, to, or at least people like John Floyd had tried to do prior to the war, or had that all really dissipated by this point? Good question. At this time, there, cert there certainly is still deep and profound and very tangible tension between the sections. For Republicans, one of their great tactics of this period was known as waving the bloody shirt. And for Southern Democrats, who were uh, still really trying to achieve a lot of the same goals that they had been in that antebellum and and during the war period, they were stuck in this kind of this difficult spot where Northerners, whenever they acted aggressively, Northerners could portray them as secessionists and Confederates, really, which they which they were. So they're especially in kind of the that period when there's the what was known as the Riders Crisis in 1879, when when Democrats in Congress, led by Southern Democrats, are trying to pass uh, this rider to undercut enforcement powers through the army appropriate as a rider to the appropriations bill for the army. That is really a negative thing for Southern Democrats because they get rejected in the elections of 1880, not only as a Republican president elected, but the Republicans regain the House even based on the kind of the uh, counter and response to them pushing a little bit too hard um, for that. And so what allows Herbert to succeed so well is that he's taking an issue that is popular throughout the country, and especially in, in Republican districts in the North, in the Northeast specifically. And at the same time, he is giving a, pre a presentation of himself and presenting himself as someone who is reconciled, someone who is moderate, and somebody who is bipartisan looking for peace. That's constantly his, that's everywhere in his speeches and his the way that he presents himself, even though privately he was obviously talking about how um, reestablishing white supremacy was his primary objective during this time. But the other thing is that the fact that there was no direct economic benefit for the Southern congressmen, they were able to portray the, the expansion of the Navy as, hey, this is us crossing the line, burying the old hatchet. This is us being willing to uh, work with you on a bipartisan basis. And 
cross-sectional basis, not to our benefit, but for the greater good. And so in that way, expansion of the U.S. Navy becomes a, a, a really important way for these Southern Democrats uh, to kind of foster reconciliation during this period. Does this push toward uh, a larger, more modern Navy simply give them, is, is it also a way to gain more credibility with, with the Republicans, uh, especially in the North, like folks like Thomas Reed? 100%. Um, Thomas Reed and especially the other, the other congressmen from Maine established this huge uh, alliance with um, the Southern Democrats that are doing the same thing. Um, the, during those four years that Herbert was chairman of the House Naval Committee, the ranking member was a Republican from Maine named Charles Boutel. And the two of them uh, really forged a working relationship that uh, allowed them to really pound through a ton of legislation of radical bills for uh, naval expansion. Um, and in doing so, they become kind of this symbol of bipartisan and uh, of, of reconciliation. And even in the uh, 51st Congress, when a Republican majority comes back in the House, those two flip roles and Boutel becomes the ranking member and Herbert becomes the, or sorry, Boutel becomes the chairman of the House Naval Committee and Herbert becomes its ranking member. The two of them continue to work together to, you know, advance naval expansion. And so their relationship kind of becomes symbolic of this alliance between Southern Democrats and uh, Republicans, especially Northeastern Republicans, on the issue of, of the U.S. Navy. How extensive are the Hillary Herbert papers? I wish they were more extensive, um, but they are they are quite extensive. He he was um, he wrote a a uh, autobiography uh, in around uh, the first decade of the 20th century, um, in which he kind of uh, went back and he wrote it for his. Uh, his posterity for his, uh, I believe actually for his grandchildren. And he recorded and wrote down everything he had done and also why he had done it. Um, it also included uh, numerous speeches that he had kind of written by hand, um, as well as a ton of correspondence, thankfully. And amongst those correspondence were Theodore Roosevelt, William A. Dunning, tons of uh, really fruitful sources and letters back and forth between those two. Was there any correspondence between Herbert and Charles Boutel? Good question. Uh, Charles Boutel's papers don't, I've never been able to find their, them existing anywhere, sadly. And in Hillary Herbert's papers, there is no information uh, coming from uh, Boutel. So I've had to rely mostly on public sources, such as what they said in the Naval Committee or what they said in the House of Representatives um, and what uh, newspapers were reporting. Um, obviously, it was not just between those two, though. And I've looked at the papers of, uh, by the time you get to the 50th Congress, Boutel's kind of right-hand man is this uh, rookie congressman from Massachusetts named Henry Cabot Lodge. Mm. And in the Lodge papers, I thought maybe there would be some mention of the alliance between them. But I haven't found any evidence of um, the motivation or commentary about that alliance except in public. But the sources and what they said in public was immense. In the House of Representatives, uh, Boutel and uh, Herbert just, you know, applauded each other and celebrated each other uh, pretty regularly by the end. I guess I was wondering because Boutel was, had been a seaman, he'd been a shipmaster, he'd served during the Confederate, sorry, the, the Civil War uh, with the Union Navy. He was there at the Battle of Mobile Bay. So this is somebody who's certainly more familiar with the Navy or, and its operations than Herbert. And under 
I think it was under Boutel that uh, Bath Ironworks in Maine is established in 1884. When I don't know if he, I don't think he was the chair at the time. 1884 that would have been Herbert. Um, that actually would have been uh, Samuel Cox in 1884. Okay, and but it's shortly thereafter that they start to get their first contracts for the steel hulls. Yeah, and it and it makes it makes a ton of sense too because obviously during this uh, whole time, you know, Bath Ironworks really blows up because of the legislation that Boutel and Herbert are agreeing on. And uh, in regards to Boutel actually having naval experience, um, in the first year that uh, that Herbert is chair of the naval committee and uh, Boutel is on it in 1885. And there's this story um, that I read in a newspaper that evidently. In the midst of, you know, a logjam in, in Congress and a fight over the Naval Appropriations Bill, um, Herbert led a small group from the House Naval Committee down to go uh, kind of experiment and see some new lifeboats. And they went and uh, Herbert was there and Boutel was there and a few other members of the committee. And they went and when they showed up, there was, uh, a, you know, a, a strong wind and choppy waters. Everyone started getting on the lifeboat except for Boutel who told them not to do it, him being the only one with experience on the water. And all the other uh, members of the committee get on the lifeboat, go out, and within moments, uh, capsize and get soaking wet. And the Republican newspapers uh, certainly made a, quite a quite a joke about all of that. Why does he become Secretary of the Navy? You said it was under Cleveland? Yeah, so during the second Cleveland administration, when uh, Cleveland comes back in 1893, um, by that point, Hillary Herbert's career in the, in the House is really – um, coming to an end, Herbert has declared that he's not going to uh, run again for um, for you know in in the uh, 1892 election, and so with that and well 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 um, Cleveland is thinking about his new administration. One of the leading members of his new cabinet is John Carlyle as Secretary of the Treasury, and I uh, of course with Carlyle going in and with Herbert leaving the House. That leaves Herbert in a beautiful position to be Secretary of the Navy. Um, he had already, uh, newspapers and members of Congress had already been celebrating him as, quote, the Congressional Secretary of the Navy. Was he the first congressman to become Secretary of the Navy? Or the first congressman who had headed the Naval Affairs Committee, I should say? Good question. He certainly was not the first um, congressman to become uh, Secretary of the Navy. Um, but I'm not sure about... Uh, at least during this period, the other chairs um, did not go on to become Secretary of the Navy. How long did he serve as Secretary of the Navy? Yep, he was Secretary of the Navy from 1893 to 1897, um, in a period of time in which um, he and the Cleveland administration oversaw a uh, lot of the construction for um, the battleships uh, that would go on to be the kind of the first class, the first first class battleships in uh in the United States Navy, um, which had been appropriated in the prior Congress. While he's Secretary of the Navy, you write, Hillary Herbert, who was rewarded for his efforts in Congress with an appointment as Secretary of the Navy in 1893, celebrated this new system in the South as, quote, a final solution of the Negro question, unquote. What was the final solution to the ne of the Negro question in this in this aspect? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you asked about that. I've gotten a lot of um, questions about the title, obviously, because of uh, – of, you know, it's, it's obviously when we read about final solution, um, oftentimes we think about uh, World War II and exa exactly Jews right. and the Holocaust, right? Exactly right. And we think about what, you know, the Germans would have called the, quote, Jewish question and the mm -hmm. final solution to it. In the United States, that concept and that usage is used several times in the late 19th century. For instance, they talk about not just the um, Negro question, they also talk about the Indian question. 
um, and they talk about solutions to it. In regards to what, and they use the term final solution occasionally, of course, um, during this. Uh, for Southern congressmen and, and really for Southern white Southerners and Southern Democratic leaders in general, not just those limited to Congress, they envisioned in the late 19th century several solutions to what they saw as the quote unquote Negro question or the Negro problem. And by that, they really just meant Black Americans voting and having uh, the rights of citizenship was really the problem that they were that they were frustrated by, largely because it wasn't good for them politically. Um, and they envisioned solutions such as uh, deportation of, there were some Southern congressmen, um, such as John Tyler Morgan, a senator from Alabama um, in the 1890s, who advocated deportation of, uh, of all Black Americans, kind of going back to the colonizationists of the earlier in the century. Most Southern, Cong most Southern Democrats, um, as the century went on, came to the realization that that, that was not realistic and that the only way that they could achieve a final solution that would protect their their political interests, their racial interests, their economic interests, was to essentially remove the rights of citizenship from Black Americans. So this is uh, how they why they go ahead and start passing. They gather in new state constitutions or new constitutional conventions and pass new constitutions that directly disenfranchise Black Americans that create and reinforce Jim Crow laws and kind of through these various schemes. Um, but the, and this kind of removing and disenfranchising and removing the rights of citizenship for Black Americans is what Herbert calls the final solution. Uh, the federal government would have, based on my reading and my research, the federal government would have been, and the Republicans would have been in a much better place, theoretically have succeeded in stopping that from happening if it hadn't been for this major rec movement of reconciliation of which the Navy was a huge part. Final question, Colin. And I like to ask this of the historians on this show and especially young historians. What was your aha moment that aha moment where you've been going years into uh, these archives and some archivist pulls out this book and you open it up and there's you blow on it and there's dust, etc. But you find that gem in one line after reading through a thousand pages of something. What was your aha moment during your doctoral dissertation research? Yeah, it's a, that's a um, wonderful question. Um, put a smile on my face just thinking about it. You know, for me, the first aha moment was reading through the congressional record, trying to find out how were congressmen debating and talking about uh, this process of disenfranchisement in the late 1880s and 1890s, and realizing that they were having these long and intricate debates about the U.S. Navy and wondering why they were having such extensive debates about the U.S. Navy at that time. Kind of as I dug deeper into that, I found out about, I found out about Hillary Herbert read his really famous book that he, he wrote in 1890 called Why the Solid South or Reconstruction and Its Results, which was a direct kind of attempt to undercut federal uh, enforcement. And once I started realizing his dual role of the role he was playing in the debates of the U.S. Navy in Congress and the role that he was playing in regards to leading the charge against federal enforcement and Jim Crow and disenfranchisement in the South, once I made that connection, that was really the, the, the key moment for me. And that came at when I called, um, there's a gentleman who uh, wrote a biography of Hillary Herbert, the only one that has ever been written. And I believe 1974, it was published. Uh, this is a guy named Hugh Hammett. And I really struggled to, to find him 
but eventually connected with him through LinkedIn and, and we had a chance to get on the phone together. And before I could say anything, he said, I hope that you will be writing your dissertation about something I missed, which is that everything Herbert was doing was uh, for the advancement of quote home rule or disenfranchisement in the South instead of his heart, his heart wasn't directly in the U.S. Navy. Hmm. And when he said that, I uh, that was the aha moment that I needed and made a beautiful connection to uh, prior historiography and a way to build off of it in a way that I've, I've done ever since. Excellent. Colin, good luck with your dissertation defense. That should come up, what, next year, you think? Yes, sir. Aiming for next May. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on to Preble Hall and, and sharing your research and, and your findings with us. Thank you, Claude. I've enjoyed it. And I truly hope that uh, you and your family and your friends up in Boston and New England continue to remain safe through uh, COVID virus. For our listeners, thank you again for joining us. If you like Preble Hall, please, wherever you listen to uh, the show on, on whatever platform, leave some feedback if you like the show, and uh, we'll keep doing it. It seems like we're, we're in April right now of 2020. Hold fast. This too shall pass. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.